When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Did the U.S. dodge a recession? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Warren Pies, co-founder of 314 Research. Hi, Warren. It's great to see you. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. So we kicked off the week. For a lot of people, it was a long weekend uh, here in the U.S. anyway, uh, with a federal holiday. And so we're in a trading-shortened week. And everybody came back, and we saw sort of stocks slide and give up some of those gains, although they did come off the lows of the day helped maybe in part by home builders who did outperform after we had a stronger than expected housing report. I know that you've been looking into housing a lot too. So what did you make of the number? What do we need to understand about what's happening in housing? Well, <clears throat> this is to me, um, we're laser focused on housing right now because to me, the most important question ac across assets is recession timing. Like, are we gonna have a recession? And if so, when is that going to hit? And so in our view at 314, we've kind of created a little model of the U.S. housing market. And when you go back into history, just to give you the, the quick background, you go back into history, in general, you see residential construction payrolls fall by 8 to 10% right before you get into a recession in the United States. So that's what we're looking for is a drawdown of 8 to 10% in residential construction payrolls. And really, when you think about what drives payrolls, it's the number of units under construction. And when you back out from there, what drives units under construction, it's the number of houses that are started and then how long it takes to finish a house. And so those are the real moving parts. I mean, you can break the industry up into single family homes and multifamily homes. There's about three times as many workers for each single family unit over a multifamily unit. But we model all this out because we're trying to find that eight to 10% decline in residential construction payrolls and when it hits. And so it's really important for us to track starts as a part of that. And today we got that all important new housing starts number and it came in at, uh, we're, we were looking, it's been at like a 70,000 on a single family starts have been coming in about 70,000 new units per month. We were expecting in order to get to our recession timeline, which is Q1 of next year, we at 314 were expecting single family starts to fall to like 60,000 units per month. And today you got a crazy rebound to like 83,000 units in the month of May. So you're way off of the, the trajectory that you need to be to get to a recession. So that's single family. Multifamily is less economically sensitive, but still drives a, a big part of that residential construction employment. And we've seen a divergence in the economics of multifamily and single family over the course of this pandemic. 
So multifamily is not as shocking, but it still went from like 45,000 units a month to 52,000 units in May. So on single family and multifamily, today was just a, a, a head scratcher if you're a recession watcher and you're an econ economic, economic uh, kind of timer, which is obviously a big part of macro investing. So that to me was the big news of the day. That's so interesting. What do you think is driving that strength? Why are we seeing a rebound? Well, there are a few theories. Um, I think the number one theory is just very supply constrained, you know, and so the whole golden handcuffs uh, concept, you know, the the idea that mortgage rates, you know, have rate have gone up so much and that anyone who has a 3% mortgage and just can think through common sense is not selling their house. So existing home supply is very low. Uh, which puts all the impetus back on the builders and on new construction, you know? And so that to me is the most likely culprit. When you dig into the geographic uh, areas where we're seeing new starts, it's you know not the Northeast. You're seeing Midwest is kind of going crazy in this last report um, comparatively to other regions. So there's an idea that, you know, I'm just playing with ideas that this new remote work trend is allowing people to migrate out of these urban centers and into more affordable regions of the country, which would be, you know, Midwest is in there. So that's, I think, part of it as well. But at the end of the day, the real straw that stirs the drink is affordability. And affordability has gone from, you know, $2,000 in real terms has been an area where we've seen housing activity slow consistently over the course of history. We went from you know $1,600 a month up for housing payments you know, before the, the pandemic to 3,000, almost a doubling in your monthly home payment on average in the United States. And so to me, that should slow activity no matter what, even if we're talking about golden handcuffs or whatever, it's just, at some point, you can't get, you can't make the math work. Now, the only other thing that I didn't mention, but it's the last part that's kind of allowing, I think, some of these new buyers to come into the market is uh, builder buy down. So builders are buying down the interest rates. Uh, a lot of times, that's temporary for for new home sales and allowing the math to work. But all of these things have a a limited runway that they can work. So I think this is just an important, it's one data point you don't want to overreact, but if we stay on this trajectory, I mean, recession, in my view, at, at 70,000 new single family starts every month, you have a recession landing somewhere in the back half of 2024. If you go up to 80,000 a month, which is where we're at this report for the month of May, I just don't see a recession. That's that's not a contractionary number in my view. Wow, which is which is incredible. And I think you really underscored why it's been it's very, it's been very difficult. I mean, this is the most talked about recession. We say this all the time. And it's it's been such a moving target. By the way, those builder incentives you mentioned, both Brian and Melody commenting about that on the platform chat as well, um, as as one component. But as you say, it's sort of a mix of everything. I just want to back back up for a second though, because I think that you're that that this is something that's really important and it doesn't get talked about a lot. We talk about housing and supply, the supply of new homes, you know, trying to 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 meet that and the undersupply that existed. It's very interesting to me that you're really focused on residential construction payrolls. So it's sort of what's happening not so much with the supply of homes, but what's happening with the workforce that you see as really critical here. That's so interesting to me that we don't hear that all the time. 
Yeah, I mean, you're always looking for a leading indicator. You know, the whole, the recession is basically, if you can boil it down, you need to see job losses if, if we're going into recession. So we had a chart in our last report, I probably should have passed along, but I can describe it really quickly. It's just, we lined up aggregate payroll growth at the beginning of every recession. And we've just chugged higher here. Like if, for the people who think we're already in a recession, this chart kind of disproves that notion immediately. So you just see payrolls chugging higher. Every single other recession is marked by job losses. That's what we're talking about. You can talk about PMIs and uh, you know leading <laughs> leading economic indicators and all these indices and financial conditions. You can get into a lot of different rabbit holes here, but the bottom line is we need to see job losses. And job losses in the res residential construction industry precede job losses overall. And you can think about it, it's the most interest rate sensitive portion of the economy. Housing is really the economy. If, if the housing market uh, you know, sneezes, the rest of the economy catches a cold basically. So this is the dynamic we're really trying to focus in. We're trying to find that leading indicator. The other stat that I pull out for people is even though construction is like 5% of total US payrolls, in the average recession going back through modern history, it accounts for 15% of the jobs lost during recession. So this is kind of a, mm. this is a, a, a labor force that's used to expanding and contracting uh, more uh, flexibly in these periods of weakness and strength. And so the, to me, this is a, a really important corner of the uh, economic landscape that we should be paying attention to. The final thing is it's like four to six month lead between residential construction payrolls rolling over and your your aggregate non-farm payrolls rolling over. And so that to me, it's the whole housing is the economy. So you need to focus on it. It's really difficult for me to envision a scenario where we have a true NBER defined recession and you don't get a slowdown in, in housing and residential construction payrolls. I mean, we're basically at the peak still. We're like uh, fourth, we're very, we're, we're really right at the peak. We've basically flatlined in the last four months, lost a little bit of a few jobs here, but for the most part, this is not the trajectory you expect uh, for uh, some kind of pending recession. Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So where is, so are we still seeing uh, a shortage of workers is is the is the market tight um or is it is it sort of like balanced and tipping where do you think the momentum is for construction workers so again we really focus on i think we do have that chart somewhere i don't know if brian you, can find it in time but i think it was in some of the material that that you passed along if we could find that if you could look for sure. brian that'd be great there was a <laughs> scatter plot brian if you have it but if not we're basically focused on units under construction. I think that's, and then you you have to make a little bit of a couple of assumptions about how many multifamily units, because like I said, a single family unit employs three workers for every one worker that a multifamily unit em employs. If you think about that and you mix that in your equation, mm -hmm. the bottom line is when you think about the stock of units under construction in the United States right now, we've gone from exceedingly tight labor conditions in the residential construction market to balanced. So this move we've we've seen from really one year ago to today, where we've had housing activity slow down, all that's done is gone from a place where I can't get an electrician to call me back, even if I have a big piece of work for them, to maybe they're going to return my call. So the market's gone from 
very tight to balanced. The next step, if you're looking for a recession, you need to go from balanced to loose. And yeah. you're not going to get there starting building 80,000 new homes per month uh, like we did in May. Yeah, I think when you said that getting an electrician come to your house, like everybody just sh shook their head, raised their hand. Yeah, like we we have all experienced that for what seems like a while now um, where it's so difficult because they're just flat out on giant projects. So they don't want to, you know, they don't even have the time to, to return your call half the time. Um, so uh, super important stuff, uh, Warren, and, it, and, and you really get in the weeds and break down the multifamily and, and single home, which is amazing. So- the recession's pushed out, maybe not happening now, but we're talking we're talking late 24 if it happens based on what you're seeing now or, or even further out than that. So our base case is Q1 of 2024. Again, those are with much more pessimistic assumptions than what we saw in today's data point. Right. So, so you're going to be watching now to see whether you have to change that, even push that correct. out. Further. Right. So our to take it one step closer to the goal is that we're looking for 7,000 residential construction jobs uh, for the economy to shed 7,000 jobs every month from here into February, March of next year to hit that 8% drawdown number that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Now, again, that assumes that starts back off to like 60,000 units a month. And I just, you know, the, today is a, a day to reflect on all that and to think like there's a, for, for one, today's number just at least on the margin pushes that recession call back. So you yeah. you can't, you, you have to adjust your model if you're looking at what we're looking at. So that's number one. If we stay at these levels, if we stay at these levels, then, uh, you know, I think that the like I said, we wouldn't even have a recession on the docket for 2024. That would be, um, uh, yeah, it's 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 really difficult to get to that place. So the 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 question you have to ask yourself is: Is this a reacceleration? Is this a soft landing? How does this um, you know go from here? Um, and the reason I think that's so important is because I I do believe the stock market's moving as if it's in a new early cycle move here. And uh, the bond market, on the other hand, is is uh, positioned as if the Fed is going to have to cut rates a lot in the next, uh, call it 12 months at the very least, and if not sooner than that. And so you have a huge divergence in what the stock market is saying and what the bond market is saying. So the recession call to me, this is why we titled the report about this recession timing, the most important question, because in our view, once you tell me where does the recession fall on the timeline? Mm -hmm. it, every other asset that's on the menu, its relative value really flows from that answer. And so the, the stock market at this point, the, the recent rally, I do believe, has has fully baked this in. I mean, there is it is fully pricing. So if we did have a bad, um, uh, if the economy did weaken from here, I think stocks aren't priced for it. If the economy continues to strengthen like this, I think it's very negative for the bond market. So, you know, we've had, we have inversions, especially in the very front part of the curve, which should suggest the Fed's going to have to go in there and cut rates. Those cuts get priced out. That bleeds into the rest of the whole, the whole yield curve shifts higher in my view. So that's the, that's what's at stake with this yeah. recession call is really the, what's going to be, which market is going to be correct. The stock market with its positive outlook or the bond market with its negative pessimistic outlook. Absolutely. And as you point out, when we're talking, they're, they're way off. They're, they're in totally different universes right now. So, you know, they can't, they can't both be right. Is there a danger that they're 
both wrong though? You know, are we going to have a repeat where for reasons, both of those get hit? Like maybe, you know, how do you, this is like, I think what, why you're saying the timing is so important, isn't it? Correct. And that's kind of my base case. So my base case is that you know, the, the recession, it, the stock market is going to be right in the near term. It's stock positive in the near term, but ultimately, I think you get a pretty nasty saw for the stock market. We do have a recession. It's hard for me, going back to the affordability numbers that I cited, it's really difficult for me to see how this persists. Just, you know, builder incentives and, you know, all the different kind of levers that are being pulled. I mean, are is is the U.S. consumer going to completely, uh, is everyone going to in mass cut 50% off the size of their new home builds? I, I don't see that. If you read through builder transcripts, that's not happening. The, the price points are still rising and things like that. So the numbers don't work. So at the end of this still is a slowdown, is a recession. And I think that disappoints the stock market eventually. But before we get there, I think the, the cycle is longer. It's just the theme has been a long cycle throughout uh, this year. We came into the year, everyone expecting a recession. And every time you get a data point like this, it pushes that cycle out. I think the first market to be frustrated will be the bond market. And the next market to be frustrated with the stock market. And so that's that's how I see it. You know, we're ultimately the max amount of pain will be inflicted on all participants. Yeah. So this is this is super important because for everyone listening, um we're all gonna have to think about time frame, right? So um for the most part, you know, if you wanna if you're if you're trying to make some calculations, uh and and if for keen viewers, you'll all remember that this issue of the timing of the recession has been the difference for a lot of forecasts. Because Warren, we'll have people come on and say, well, that person's saying the opposite of what the person who was on yesterday is saying. And longer term, they might feel the same, but it's that timing of the recession. So Raul and Darius, for example, very different ideas about the timing of the recession when they were on together a few weeks ago. So everywhere we go, Jim Bianco was on last week. Everyone has a different theory, but like you, everyone's having to go back and revise it constantly because we're getting this information in, um, in real time, if you're trying to lead into the leading indicator. So a couple of people asking this question um, in the chat, including Colin and Joseph. So do, I'll, I'll use Joseph's. Does the Fed need to raise rates higher to hit payrolls? So what does this mean for the Fed? If the economy is showing this kind of resilience, you're at the Federal Reserve Board. You just decided to keep rates on hold or skip or pause, whatever you want to call it. What are you thinking? I mean, you're thinking you have to go again? Uh, on the margin, yeah. Uh, I mean, you may be able to, I think the Fed believes they're restrictive at the moment. I think there's evidence that suggests they're maybe not as restrictive as they as they think. Um, and so if the Fed, if you're in the Fed shoes and you think you're already into sufficiently restrictive territory, then it's just a function of time from here that they need to, to let their that rate policy uh, work through the system. Um, if, if it was me, I think what they could do is you're talking about the housing market, you're talking about borrowing channels, raising that front end. What we've seen is it kind of is, it has this kind of perversely stimulative effect where it actually increases this interest income to a certain small segment of the population who already have a lot of money. And then it incentivizes economic activity through that channel. I think they need to really hit the borrowing channel. They want to slow the economy down and slow inflation down, slow down housing costs. And that would point to uh, additional QT or more aggressive QT and balance sheet operations. And so mm. to me, that's the, um, 
that has been an important point to watch for monetary policy is what they do with their balance sheet and quantitative tightening. And so to me, that's that's what, it, it, if the world starts reaccelerating at a 7% mortgage rate, which sounds insane to me, and, the, and that starts, the, that housing disinflation that everyone expected to work through the system does not work through the system, then the Fed's gonna have to figure out a way to push those mortgage rates up. And I think the easiest way to do that if you go back in history during periods of QT, the spread between mortgages and 30-year treasury bonds goes from like 90 basis points to 300 basis points. So further QT where they're just, you know, sell, they're, they're letting more mortgages roll off their balance sheet, that's a real drag on, on, on borrowing costs for the housing market. And so, and that's where I think you end up eventually, you have the, the, buy, the builder incentives and all that stuff, that's going to run out of, that's going to run out of steam. And there is an interest rate. I had somebody bring the, the builder incentives up to me and they said, well, you know, this is just the golden handcuffs and buy down rate buy downs and things like that. And the thought experiment, if you think that's what's going on is, okay, if rates go to 20% tomorrow, does that mean that, you know, builders are in even better position because it's going to have even fewer existing home sales. And I think that the thought experiment should reveal to you that no, that houses, whether they're new or existing or anything, you have crossed a barrier where the economy can no longer support housing starts at this level with interest rates at that at that point. So that's the focus I think that the Fed's going to have is on their balance sheet and how they can impact those markets if they decide that that's fueling inflation further. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, it's interesting. And we've been talking about the Fed being really between a rock and a hard place. Um, Roger Hurst just did a masterclass with Diego Perea earlier today. And Diego, very worried about inflation and what he calls a series of systemic bubbles. Let's have a listen to a clip from that. This is not a zero-sum game in the sense that when we abuse monetary and fiscal, we delay, transfer, transform the problems, we're effectively creating even bigger issues. And I think that's where we're now. We're sort of trapped in, in this dynamic between systemic bubbles that are uh, too big to fail and the uh, problem of inflation uh, as a result of this monetary and, and fiscal abuse. And these are, I think this framework is, is proven to be very resilient and it can help explain uh, pretty much every single behavior from, from central banks and governments, from uh, energy subsidies to bailouts to all sorts of interventions. And I think it will continue to dominate uh, a global macro and potentially is giving us a, a very strong hint of uh, how the end game might look like. How are you thinking about the Fed's fight against inflation? I mean, is that the priority? We've ha are we still, should we still be looking at systemically about what's happening with banks, about commercial real estate? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, from the that sounds like a, a pretty big picture statement. I checked that clip out before uh, we we went on air today, and so I'm, I'm familiar with it. It's a, a very big picture thought, and so the big picture thought that I'm trying to keep in my mind as we navigate this cycle is just we we added eight trillion dollars of debt in t over a two year period or three year period. Basically, we've never done that before. We've, you can go back to World War II. We've never done that before. And it's, it, it, you have to all, everyone, myself included, everyone has to have a certain degree of humility about what happens next. 
And that I think has been really difficult for me. I'll be honest. It's been hard for me because we go, we are historians ultimately. We're quantitative researchers. And in this world, a quantitative researcher, you're just going through history and you're mining the, the data that you have. And we all have the same little slice of history to work off of. And now you go throw a variable like this into the mix and you add this much debt to the picture and you impair the supply side at the same time. So you yeah. impair supply via lockdowns and then you stimulate demand via all this spending and fiscal spending is much more impactful than anything on the monetary side. So you have these two forces that have hit each other. And of course you're gonna have inflation and how that spins from here is, is really anyone's guess. And that's why when you get a number like this, which is really a trend break in the housing world and you say, I can go back and say, okay, we haven't had housing this expensive since the seventies and eighties. We did see it in the seventies and eighties, uh, $3,000 real home payments. But this is the first time really in 40 years or 45 years that we've had housing prices this much and we shouldn't be reaccelerating, but yet we are. And you have to ask yourself, am I missing something? Is that history that I'm studying too different from today to really inform my analysis? And so that's the thing that I consistently try to keep in the front of my mind, not in the back of my mind, but the front of my mind as we go through this. And so that's my kind of yeah, excellent, excellent point. Excellent point. And none of us knows how long it's going to take to work its way through the system, if it has or not. I mean, those are the questions that we've been asking and that we talk about all the time on Real Vision. Um, and Jim Bianco, we talked about it with him last week and, and whether some of these changes are permanent or whether they're just taking longer to work their way through the system. Um, it You know, that was a huge, huge moment. So... Love that you made that point because I think it's easy to forget because we kind of think that it's behind us, but in a lot of ways it's not. A uh, couple of questions here. Want to ask this one, um, and I think it speaks to this point from Trillionex. What's your view on the end of the forbearance of student loan repayment on consumption in H two and more economic slowdown? I mean, it's a it's a definite drag. Uh, I, I think that like it goes back to my point. You know, we've seen it's kind of a removal of fiscal stimulus in a way. Um, and so that'll be a drag. I don't see it um, being determinative uh, in its by itself, but I also, but I, it's certainly a drag. And so it's one of those things that it adds to our it, part of our base case, which is that we're headed towards a recession, a contraction, ultimately. I mean, everyone's been all over the liquidity bus. I mean, liquidity is going to be a headwind as we go forward, student loan uh, forbearance headwind as we go forward. Um, you know, and up until today, I would say housing affordability, major headwind to the economy. And those are some big headwinds, tailwinds, falling oil and energy prices, but that can reverse. Um, and, and, and obviously a rally in the stock market, which is kind of uh, can feed on itself. You get that positive wealth effect. So those are some of the, the counterbalancing forces that I see. Uh, question from Andrew: Would Master Pies please offer his opinion on oil and gold? You just mentioned um, energy prices coming down. Boy, they have. Uh, what is your outlook there? Uh, I'm an oil bull at this point. I, I think, especially when you take the recession off the table, I think demand is. You know, I, everyone was so worried about a recession coming into the year. Uh, we thought it was a longer coming cycle, second half type of event, and we've had to revise our forecast even. So what you're seeing is, I think the way to interpret what's happening in the market 
if I could offer my opinion, is that I don't think that this is a true early cycle reacceleration. I think this is a bunch of positioning getting unwound. I think everyone was too bearish on the economy and bearish on the stock market coming into the year, and those positions are being unwound. And, and so that's what's happening. And now we're all searching for a narrative to fit the price action. That's what my base case is at the very least. I think part of that positioning that's going to have to get unwound is a whole bunch of short positions that got layered onto the, the oil market with the idea that we're all going, we're going to a recession, that the U.S. is going to fall into a recession. That's negative for oil. It's a very simplistic way of thinking. If you go through whatever, I look at like the petroleum complex, futures market, managed money positions in the gas oil market, for instance, we've had hedge funds net short. That's very rare and usually occurs close to market bottom. So we've seen that and it's starting to unwind. We've seen a lot of short positions in the, uh, in the US uh, markets as well. So I think positioning needs to be unwound. I don't think the demand is going to soften this year. And so ultimately, you know, We've had some one-off supply factors that have kind of weighed on the market, but with the OPEC cuts and the full brunt of the Saudi cuts in particular coming into effect this next month, I think we're going to get some serious upside in the price of oil. So in my view, before the year's over, we touch $100 a barrel again. Interesting. Uh, gold. We, gold was part of that too. What's your outlook? And Colin put some more meat on his gold question. Is the price action of gold telling investors fear is coming out of the monetary system? Personally, I, our models are bullish on gold, and I like gold uh, in the in a so the pause playbook is stocks, gold, bonds, like basically buy it all. And I'm a maybe I'm being too clever here, but I I'm starting to doubt that playbook because I'm every single incremental data point we're getting says that this pause might be short lived, that this might be a skip and not a true pause. And I do believe gold is that first asset that starts discounting a new cutting cycle for the Fed. So I think that's what that's what gold keys off of is ultimately it's looking out like eight to 10 months before the Fed starts cutting rates and rallies based off of that. And I think there's been a lot of confusion and cross currents in the gold market. And that's why we've seen it's at up near all time highs, but that's why we've seen kind of this churning in the, in, in the last few months. Um, I'm worried about it because of the, because of the, uh, the possibility that the Fed has to go back in there. And at the very least, hold rates higher for longer and keep real rates across the curve for longer than maybe the market and the gold market in particular expects. So, um, and, and potentially QT if you're right. Uh, and, and they, and they're watching that housing market. Um, correct. We're still trying issue. to talk about where they hike next. We're not anywhere close to the place where they pause. You know, the best way I could think of this is, um, are we in uh, the way we framed it a few months ago when we modestly increased our, equity exposure was, are we in June 06 or June 07? And I think everyone is expecting us to be more like in June 07, where we were within six to nine months of the recession, whereas June 06 was when the Fed paused and the recession didn't hit for another 18 months. Mm. Uh, and the real serious stuff didn't hit for two, 24, 30 months. And so I think that's in the market, the stock market was up 16% the year following June of 06. A lot of people forget that. But, um, you know, that's just the difference in timing that recession that in, in the difference that timing can make for different asset returns. Fantastic stuff. Lena, I see your question about commercial real estate. We're not going to tackle it today because we're out of time, but Ash is doing a deep dive on commercial real estate on the platform. So look out for that. And he may come join us and update us on a couple of great conversations he's had tomorrow. So we'll touch on that 
a little bit more deeply tomorrow. Um, before I let you go, Warren, so are you are you are you playing stocks short term? Do you think they can run up for here, or are you worried about that turn? And you and and if so, what do you like? Because it sounds like you're worried about bonds. Are you worried about both? And I'm more worried about this. The shift has been from being worried about stocks to more worried about bonds. And that's been a gradual shift. We wrote a report in May. Uh, everyone was talking about the horrible breadth in the market. And so what we saw was this breadth divergence. We called it a mega cap breadth divergence. Very rare where the top 10%, 10 stocks in the S&P 500 outperformed the bottom 490. And the message we found from this is that there's really no predictive power following a, a mega cap divergence, except for the fact you get a lot of volatility, either a major rally or a route. So we called our report rally or route 90 days to decide because it happens on a really short time frame. And the bottom line is if breadth for the bottom 490 improves, you have a serious rally on your hands. And so that's what we've seen really mm -hmm. from the end of May forward when we had that jobs report that came out uh, late May, early June, I can't remember what, the rest of the market, the more cyclical pockets of the market started participating in this rally. So you really, you know, you don't want to buy the rally, you want to rent the rally here, but you don't want to be fading it or, or, you know, it depends on your time frame and what you're doing, but I don't want to stand in front of this thing right now because I think we're still broadening out and we're still having these people chasing from their, uh, their underweight positions, but I don't see new all-time highs or anything dramatic like that. I think, uh, Ultimately, that um, I, I honestly think if we're going to have a recession, then we're going to be making, we're going to at least be revisiting the October lows that we had. So that's how I see over the long term. So, over the long term, yeah. yeah. Warren, fantastic stuff today. You gave us a lot to look at, uh, to pay attention to, and to think about as we all try to sort of game out this recession. Thank you so much. It's great to catch up with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for all the smart questions, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow. As I said, we're going to. Hopefully uh, have Ash make a quick appearance and update us on some of the great conversations happening on the platform. And we've got Sean Hackett. A lot of you have been asking about weather, about the impact on agriculture, on those ag commodities that we've been all watching. So we're going to get the man himself in to sort of lay it all out for us. So hope to see you then. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.